Welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We're here at episode 143. We've got just this episode and one more regular one before we get to the best of the year. I'm your co-host, Russ. Yeah, and I'm your co-host, Mike, and I'm already thinking about that uh, end of the year best of. I got uh, I was looking through the classical stuff. There's a lot, let's say. There's a lot of really good stuff that I had forgotten about, really. Yeah. I've got to do some more refreshing of my mind. I'm glad we got the Christmas episode out of the way last week. So yeah. Christmas is over for me now. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I haven't really been listening to Christmas music. I've been sort of like reviewing the year, really. Mm-hmm. Supposed to get into the spirit of the season, but uh, I don't know. And let's see, just this Friday, we finally, after several restarts and postponements, we got our episode recorded with the same difference two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast, AJ and Johnny. Yeah, and they say it's going to go up in the new year, so look for it then. We'll let you know when it's up. Maybe New Year's Day, but I don't want to, you know, kind of push them. We'll see. It's, it's their decision. As always, if you've not checked out their podcast, please do. They look at several versions of the same jazz standard each episode. They play little snippets from each version, discuss the history of the original and the different versions, say what they like and don't like. We got a little better feel for what they don't like <laughs> this week. <laughs> And uh, we gave them a little bit of a challenge with some of the stuff, too. But it was a really good time. And uh, we're hoping we can get together with them, you know, on a regular basis. You know, I had a bit of a karmic return after that episode that I have to kind of just mention because they kind of said something about, I don't know if they'll keep this in the show, but they said something about that. We, you know, we really, it's not like we don't like strings. It's just they don't like strings really in jazz. And I get it. I don't really like it in jazz either. Now, the thing is, strings in jazz, sometimes they use tastefully, like we talked about the new uh, Gregory Porter album, the Christmas album. And I thought the strings were really lightly used there mm-hmm. and it sounded good. But just this week, I was listening to like some Latin jazz of the year. And there's a record by Yvonne Linz with the Tbilisi Symphony Orchestra. And boy, they really laid the strings on heavily on that record. It was it was too much <laughs> for me. So I feel like uh, I got a little karmic return by trying to defend the strings in jazz. I really didn't like the use of the strings mm-hmm. on that album at all. Not, no offense to the uh, artist, but it was just uh, too much for me. Right. Getting into Mantovani territory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that coming out. And as always, there'll be a link to their podcast in the description. If you stick around to the end of our episode, you can hear their little audio promo as well. And we'll put up a link to that guest episode whenever that comes out. Hopefully come out right at the beginning of the year. Last week was Christmas music. And as I mentioned, we got that out of our system. Here's the thing. I still want to be listening to Christmas music, but I'm not. <laughs> I feel like Christmas ended early. Yeah. Anyway, it will do anything for our listeners. We've always got lots of new things to listen to. We've got a little bit of time to squeeze some more in before the end of the year. And as always, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to discuss in this episode. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, streaming CD quality music from France. You can listen to the podcast there as well if you want to get everything in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or the recording list or links are not clear or easy to follow on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. Help us get some more listeners in our audience base. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the music recommendation categories. Also, come over, follow us on our Facebook page. Get some extra release info and see some interaction over there. You can leave a comment or a message there as well. And if you have any other questions or comments, remember, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch by email as well. 
Our address is Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, by the way, have you um, accepted the Deezer Purple Heart yet? Is, have you gotten used to that, or what's your feeling on that now? Yeah, I guess so. I'm just seeing purple <laughs> all the time. noticing it. <laughs> yeah, I don't notice it much anymore. Anyway, from Deezer tonight, we'll be streaming some samples so you get a better idea of what the music sounds like, along with our explanation, description, and discussion, and our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. Should we just jump right in? I don't really have any anecdotes. It seems like a lot of people seem to have died this week, but none of them were musicians, so we'll just kind of go over that. I don't have any good news or bad news music-wise. There were people in popular music who died, but not in our adult music field, let's say. I guess we just jump in then. Let's just jump in. Okay, so classical music. Let's get into this pronunciation right away. First of all, we have a composer <laughs> by the name of, say it with me, Ludzasko Ludzaski. What a name. Imagine your family name is Ludzaski. Yeah, what do you want to call this kid? Let's call him Ludzasko. I don't know. Is that his? <laughs> is that the name his parents gave him? I mean, I don't know. Makes you wonder. Yeah. It's kind of a cool name, though, I have to say. I like it. Ludzasko Ludzaski. It kind of sounds like, you know, sort of this kind of seesaw kind of thing, mm. you know? <laughs> Anyway, he lived uh, 1545 to 1607, about, and this album is called Il Concerto Segreto, and the ensemble doing this, okay, say this with me, uh, <laughs> Americans, mm. La Neride. What it means is the Nereids. Who were they? They were um, the three daughters of Nereus in ancient Greek mythology, so they were three nymphs, mm. Okay. And one of them was um, Thetis, who was the mother of Achilles. So, okay. Anyway, this is a, an ensemble of three sopranos. That's really unusual, having three sopranos on an album, just three high voices. Usually you'll have some kind of lower voice to anchor, and they have that. They have a lower woman's mm. voice, but she's still a soprano. It's not an alto or a mezzo or anything like that. Okay, so the three um, soloists here are Camille Alarat, Julie Rose, and Anna Viera Laita, with the participation of. Joanne Moulin on the harpsichord, Manon Papasergio on bass, viol, and triple harp, and Gabriel Rignol on the arch lute. This is released by the Reacher Car label. All right, what is this album about? Luzasco Luzaski. It's a composer who I know from my um, old Grove um, Italian Baroque Masters book. He's mentioned there along with many, many others. And he has appeared on instrumental like harpsichord albums with a mixture of you know early baroque composers i've never heard a full album of his music and not only are we getting a full album of his music but it's vocal music and i've never mm. heard any of his vocal music before or maybe one or two pieces somewhere that i've forgotten about but this particular program is very interesting it turns out that ensembles of female voices now we don't we think of this as a little unusual we'll hear like a duet in an opera between two female voices usually one will be a soprano and one a mezzo or something like that but here we have three sopranos. These types of ensembles were created by Alfonso II at his court in Ferrara in the 1570s. The concerto of the sisters Lucrezia and Isabella Bendidio was the first and became a template for similar ensembles of female voices. So the idea for the title of this album, Il Concerto Segreto, The Secret Concert, comes from a secret or private concert ensemble created by Alfonso for the Duchess Margarita Gonzaga his third wife, 
uh, that aims <laughs> they did it back then too his third <laughs> wife uh, that aims for excellence and rarity rather than ostentation you, you, you know they say oh I'm old school you know you marry for life I mean I don't think anybody really ever did that I think only the working class because they couldn't they were just tied to the land so they had to stay married for the same person anyway the fame and fantasy of the new genre would soon spread throughout Europe. It started in Italy, as so many uh, musical styles did at that time. The original ensemble was formed by Laura Peverara and Anna Guarini, the daughter of the poet Giambattista Guarini. Livia D'Arco swiftly became another member of the ensemble. Fame and desire swiftly arrived. These women performed before a select audience, the Duke and Duchess, plus a few other prestigious personalities. And it was said that they were beautiful, sang well, and could play divinely for several hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Each was assigned an instrument of which she accompanied herself. Laura played the harp, Anna the lute, and Livia the viol. In the collective imagination, they became an incarnation of the three graces, the goddesses of charm, beauty, and creativity. At the Duke's request, this musica riservata, we've probably heard this expression before, reserved music or, you know, kind of secret music, mm. was overseen by Luzasco Luzaski, our composer on this album, who was a pupil of Cipriano de Rore. He lived and worked in Ferrara as organist of the city's cathedral and as maestro di cappella at the palace. The pieces heard here were composed especially for the three women, and so they remained unpublished. The scores were returned to their shelves under lock and key and jealously guarded. These works are difficult to perform well, and a feature of these concerts was the addition of instruments to the madrigals as heard on this recording. The usual practice was to sing such works a cappella, but we're going to get accompaniment on this album. Hmm. Eventually, the techniques of the music performed by the women soon became known by word of mouth, because none of this music was published, so nobody could study these scores. And we know that composers such as Luca Marenzio, Jacques de Verf, Roland de Lassus, and Giulio Caccini heard these women in the mid-1580s and as a result, directed the major goal towards the Stilus Luxurians that soon progressed far beyond Ferrara. Anyway, in 1597, Alfonso II died with no heirs, and as a result, Ferrara became a papal state. Anna Guarini, one of the three who was in the original ensemble, was murdered by her husband in Jeez. 1598, just a year after Alfonso died. Doesn't say anything else about these circumstances. And Laura and Livia subsequently performed for the last time together, I guess, on 16 November 1598, only a year after that. The guest of honor on that date being Margaret of Austria, who was visiting Ferrara to marry Philip II of Spain by proxy. Afterwards, the Duke's musical estate was broken up, causing the loss of the secret collection. Ludzowski, however, was no longer subject to the ducal ban on publication and decided to publish his majorgal A Uno, Due o Tre Separani in Rome in 1601 as a tribute to his former patron, and for Giambattista Guanini, so we know these works because of that. This recording focuses principally on the collection from 1601. La Neride invites us to one of these secret concerts, so let's step back in time and attend mm. by pushing the play button. And let me just uh, push the play button right away here before I say anything about this first track and give you an idea of what this uh, sounds like.
Oh, that winding line just goes on, and I have to kind of cut out of it. I really love the lightness of tone of this ensemble. I mean, three sopranos could really blow you away if they chose <laughs> to, but these keep the voices gentle. It sounds like there's a harpsichord and arch lute accompanying here. So there are a lot of uh, combinations of uh, instruments in the accompaniment, which I really enjoyed. The voices blend together beautifully, as you heard, one of them occasionally getting some decorations and bursting out of the harmony. There are rhythmic changes between some lines, drawing attention to new verses and overall structure. It's good writing. It's creative, too, with many techniques, like question and answer, one voice followed by harmony, and many others. And a beautiful opening, as you just heard. That track was called Tamo Mia Vita. I love you, my life. And now when she means my life, she means the guy that she's singing to, not her her own life. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an expression for a love. You are the you are the love of my life. You are my life itself. That's that's what it means. Two old dolcezze amarissime d'amore. <laughs> How to translate this? The uh oh sweet bitterness of love. There's kind of like a sort of oxymoron oh, yes. there. Mm. Yeah. But we all know what it means, don't we? Yes we do. Especially if we are our age. Anyway, this demonstrates a mastery of effect. Effect meaning emotions, playing with the contrast of slowing down and acceleration, and even with extended ritardandi, or slowing down. And notice uh, the depictions of sweetness in the line, che par suave. Now, suave, in English, uh, we have the word suave. It's kind of similar, but it's got a little more meaning in Italian. It means pleasing to the senses due to sweet delicateness. Mm. Okay, a little different than suave, which means like charming or confident or elegant, all kind of combined into one thing. Anyway, the use of dissonance to represent suavity is a good idea. Monteverdi would also use it. Oh, bitter sweetness of love, the lyrics go. It starts as a lament, with certain voices occasionally reaching for heights while the others provide harmony. The voices all trade off, and this is what makes this interesting for me. One going for a high note, then another, as the first drops down. It's an effect that draws the ear. This also features rhythmic changes between verses, part of Lutzowski's technique. There's some great textural changes in this piece, such as the one after the three-minute mark, in which the voice is suddenly quiet after an outburst. Let me see if I can isolate that for you. This is three minutes into the piece. Wow, that was like really unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> That's a sudden quieting down. And there's a lot of surprises like that on the album. Track three, Stral Pungente d'Amore. This is orchestral in approach and features only two of the sopranos. It's another song about love. Do Italians ever tire of talking, writing, or singing <laughs> about love? Seems not. Not to this day. In the 21st century, they're still doing it. Uh, anyway, this song has a uh, bass viol accompanying along with harpsichord and arch lute. This doesn't sound any more orchestral than the other tracks, but it does have more continuo accompanying. Track four, Aura Soave. There's that word, Soave, again. Let's uh, listen to the opening of this one. Aura Suave. 
know, those Italians really had a way with melody. Now, this particular track uh, features only one of these sopranos. It's a Camilla Alagat on this one. And we'll hear each of these sopranos having a solo piece before the album is over. So this is the first of the three. The vocalist has to go down low in her range, and I rather liked that register in Alarat's voice. It has some gravity. You heard a bit of it in that sample. Luzowski really knows how to draw beauty out of his melodic lines. There's a lot of gorgeous ornamentation and melisma in the vocal line. We heard that on the first syllable, ow, in aura, right at the beginning of that sample. The soloist uses a lot of her range in this piece. This is an intoxicating work and performance. Track five, we're going to switch composers here for a few tracks. Claudio Monteverdi, one of the giants of the early Baroque. Come dolce oggi Lauretta. This is Monteverdi's only piece for three sopranos in what is known as his ninth book of madrigals. How sweetly today the breeze blows, plays and flatters, coming lasciviously to kiss my cheeks and breast. Wow. Anyway, this has a harpsichord and triple harp as continuo. you got to imagine that the, the women who are singing the song are singing to you like that. And like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we hear all three voices in this piece, the highest one soaring, and I really like the way the vocalists lean into the work's sighing qualities, getting breathy at times with their vocals, then full-voiced. Ludzowski's way of ensuring that every voice gets a chance in the spotlight is appealing too. This is sheer pleasure. I'm going to sample the end of this piece. Now, we've recorded this um, podcast in mono, but one of the extra pleasures you get uh, from this is that the the voices are kind of spread across the left to the right ear. So when an, a new voice comes in, it's sort of like, uh, I guess, listening to uh, The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, where something <laughs> will happen in one ear and then it'll pop up in the other, too. So if you're listening in headphones, it's, it's a bit of a pleasure the way they've set this up. All right, track six, Francesca Caccini. Now, you might know the name Giulio Caccini. He's the composer of the very famous song Amarilli, Mia Bella. Francesca was his daughter. And uh, this piece is called Le Tre Sirene, an appropriate title for these three women, the three sirens. The sirens, of course, sang sailors to their deaths (laughs) on the shores of Naples. They were kind of these sea creatures, and they would sing, and the uh, the singing was so beautiful that the uh, sailors would try to get closer and wreck their ships on the rocks. The sirens did it on purpose, by the way. Anyway, this seems to be a theater piece or maybe an opera because it's uh, labeled scene one. The three verses are sung solo, one by each singer. The first verse is by Anna Viera Leite, assuming that I'm following the order of sopranos in the track list. I hope I'm getting them right. And this song uh, gives advice about how to live a happy life. The answer, by the way, if you don't want <laughs> just to be a spoiler, is, of course, to follow love. Okay, I guess the three sirens would know. It's a pretty charming composition. Mm. Let's hear this from when the vocals come in. Oh. 
Track 7, Troppo Ben Po, featuring all three uh, sopranos, has a majestic opening as each verse enters strongly on a note in the higher range. The vocal writing is layered with each verse coming in almost in canon for its statement of the line. For the second section, there's generally a lead verse with the other two in imitation. Lots of stops and starts in this work. There's some word painting too. The word dolce is sung tenderly in harmony. Track 9, Cor mio de non languire. Two sopranos here, accompanied by arch lute. It's a slow, lamenting track. One might say languishing since the first verse is, My heart, do not languish. But it does. <laughs> because as we can tell by the music. The music emotionally paints the heart's languishing quality. This has a lot of pauses as the harmony struggles for the way forward. We can distinguish the quality of the two voices clearly in this piece, no doubt what Luzaski intended. Track 10, Kio non tami cor mio. This is the uh, second solo on the album. Uh, Julie Rosette gets the solo vocal here. She's in the higher range and lets off some high notes, which are bird-like in their period style lack of vibrato. This comes across as a monologue as the singer questions whether she should love her heart. What's really astonishing about that line, too, is you expect it to resolve downwards, but she goes for the higher note on the resolve. It mm. surprised me every time. It's, it's really fantastic and really a really pleasant voice to listen to. Track 11, Non sa che sia dolore. We have all three sopranos back again. This starts sweetly with the middle voice. The others come in like the bloom on a flower to harmonize that opening Note, I thought this opening was really beautiful, and I would like to sample that. go into a full straightforward harmony there. The track is called uh, Non Sa Che Sia Dolore. This piece alternates between lugubrious block harmony, which we heard the beginning of at the end of that sample, and more joyful ornamented phrases sung more melodically, freely. We hear the harpsichord and arch lute in accompaniment. Track 12, little composer change here, Luca Marenzio, who's been getting a lot of attention uh, lately by um, performers. This is uh, track 12, Belle Nefe Natura. This is a really interesting uh, lyric, actually. It kind of brags that nature made us beautiful so that beauty might accord with harmony. So in other words, what the lyrics are saying is, we're beautiful so that there would be harmony between our appearance and our singing. Nice. Yeah, yeah nice idea. A lot idea. of confidence there. <laughs> yeah. 
The piece itself is pretty spare and highlights individual voices despite the fact that they're singing in harmony. And um, I really like pieces like this, especially with an ensemble that sounds as good as this. So let's give this a sample too. Now, as you heard, that's all like a cappella too. So they're yeah. creating that harmony and that rhythm too themselves. Track 13, O Primavera. This is the third solo on the album, and this is by um, Ana Viera Laite. And this starts with a long solo by the uh, triple harp. So now we've heard all three in solo vocal works. She does indeed get a lot of ornamentation to sing in this piece. It's highly ornamented. I like these kinds of voices, more modest than late-ear operatic voices, yet falling on the ear pleasantly. This is a song that praises spring, and I don't want to leave this singer out, so let's uh, sample this too. I'm going to try to start this a little bit in because there's a long intro to this one. Okay, you heard some of the uh, ample ornamentation right at the end of that line. We're back to Francesca Caccini, Le Tre Damigelle. Damigelles are maidens. And we hear, of course, the three vocalists here. This has an arch lute and triple harp accompaniment and has a long introduction before the voices come in. They enter in beautiful harmony, which remains for the entire first verse. They start trading off in the second verse and get solos after that. The text is long and the verses end with rearranged harmonies of the voices. The choral writing is inventive in its variety of approaches and a lot is packed into this work. Back to Luzaski, Io mi son giovinetta. Two soloists here. And a meditative arch lute gives the intro. There are really beautiful echoes and recombinations of voices in the writing, and we'll hear that in the sample as well as the sudden changes of rhythm. I'm going to start this one minute in. Track 16, Occhi del Pianto Mio, features all three vocalists. This one has a chromaticism, revealing a connection with uh, Carlo Gesualdo, 
also present in Ferrara in the 1590s. The harmonies are presented in block form, and we hear some of that chromaticism right away. Let's hear some of that. Lamenting lyrics are colored with light chromaticism as the work goes on. And finally, we end with Francesca Caccini, a fairly long work called Coro delle Piante Incantate. This is from her La Liberazione di Rogero dal Isola d'Alicina, the liberation of Rogero from the island of Alcina. It comes from a dramatic work, as I said. It's labeled scene one in the text. This must be a very long scene because all three of these <laughs> fragments were labeled scene one. Uh, the first verse is sung solo here by Julie Rosette. Then we hear Anna Vieira Leite come in, and the high voice of Camille Allerat is last. At a minute and 20 seconds, there's a section for lamenting viol. Anna Vieira Leite is heard in the second verse, then Camille Allerat's high lament in the next. We hear all three together sing softly in the final verse. And that's it. Music specifically written for three sopranos is something new to me, and uh, I have to say it's a delightful discovery in this uh, Baroque idiom. Previously, I'd only heard Ludzowski's instrumental pieces, always as part of compilations, but hearing this, I realized I, and the world, have been missing an inventive composer of harmony from the early Baroque. Ludzowski's way of shuffling the singers so each gets a chance in the spotlight and of changing his rhythmic and melodic approach frequently in his songs is testament to his invention. The album is well performed by La Nereide, who bring out the special vocal qualities of each track with Italianate warmth and passion. The entire album is beautifully and sensitively performed, as I'm sure by now you've heard. One does wonder what La Nereide's next project would be. Is there more music out there for three sopranos? I'm very <laughs> curious to know. Yeah, this was splendid. The vocal parts and vocalists command your attention their expression and the detail of the ornamentation, nuance of the lines, the instrumentation is fitting and subtle, and the power of this music to enchant is still there 400 years later. Yeah. I want to hear more. Yeah, we have to hear more music sung like this these days, I think. We need it. Okay, the second album that we're talking about tonight in classical is a record that I've been really looking forward to hearing. <laughs> This goes right up to the top of, well, not, not to the top. I've got like a, a first and second favorite of the year so okay. far, but this is up there. We've got to talk about the uh, cover of this one, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> if I said anything about this. Letters to Eric Satie, and this is by a pianist that I really like, Bertrand Chamayou. Last year, we heard him play Messiaen's Vingt Regards sur l'Enfant Jésus. And uh, much to Russ's chagrin, <laughs> it was a rough piece to go. But I'm very familiar with it for a long time, and I really liked it. This is a much lighter program than that. Oh, I didn't mention this, but yeah, we we need to talk about the album cover first. This is a <laughs> really, this is one of the more bizarre classical album covers, a form of music that generally doesn't come off up with good album covers unless they're kind of putting a painting on the cover right. or the artist. This one has the artist, uh, Bertrand Chamayou, 
balancing himself on the arm of a sofa. And, you know, he's just kind of standing on one leg on the arm of a sofa with his, uh, you know, his arms hanging straight down and looking at the camera. And I'm kind of trying to figure out why he's yeah, doing that. What does it there, mean? What does it mean? <laughs> if this was an LP record that I had and I had to look at that all the time, I don't know how I'd feel about that. <laughs> anyway, on the postage stamp sized um, picture that we get on streaming, it's not so bad, though. It is odd, though. Anyway, Shamayu wrote the booklet note himself and admits he knew very little about Satie until recently and didn't know what to make of his music. Satie is often said to be one of the fathers of conceptual art, and it was from that angle that Shamayu began to glimpse a world far richer than it had first seemed, especially through the lens of one of the icons of conceptual art, John Cage, who was a great admirer of Satie. Now, in this album, we're going to hear works by mostly Satie, but some John Cage piano works too, and a few prepared piano works. One of the more interesting things Cage wrote about Satie is this, he says, If you consider that sound is characterized by its pitch, its loudness, its timbre, and its duration, and that silence, which is the opposite and therefore the necessary partner of sound, is characterized only by its duration, you will be drawn to the conclusion that of the four characteristics of the material of music, duration, that is time length, is the most fundamental. You should probably play that again and then yeah. shut the podcast <laughs> off and think about it for a minute. Cage was pretty profound. Silence cannot be heard in terms of pitch or harmony. It's heard in terms of time length. And also, it's really not possible to sample that because you really need to hear the piece progress <laughs> when these things happen. It took a Satie and a Webern to rediscover this musical truth. In the midst of post-romanticism, Satie proposed an alternative vision of musical time, one that wiped away the notions of end and beginning. Yeah, that's really true. We're going to hear that a lot. Really, mm. A lot of these pieces don't seem to have a beginning or an end. They just kind of start and wander harmonically, and then they just end. By the way, Shamayu, when he was uh, recording this album, also recorded an album of John Cage's prepared piano music simultaneously with this album, and that's going to be released next summer. So fans of John Cage mm. will look forward to that. I certainly am, and we will certainly talk about that on this podcast, because uh, that's kind of a rarity that we really need to put out there, I think. Anyway, this album begins with um, John Cage, All Sides of the Small Stone for Eric Satie. Now, this is attributed to John Cage. It was the inspiration for the pianist uh, Bertrand Chamayou to make this album, or the story behind it was the inspiration. It's kind of a gymnopédie, if you know uh, the gymnopédie number one, one of Satie's most famous pieces. Cage is sort of imitating that style here. And it's said to have been slipped into a score by experimental composer James Tenney without his knowledge by his mentor, John Cage. Hmm. It was found after Tenney's death by his wife, Lauren Pratt, as she was leafing through her late husband's manuscripts with an ensemble of Mexican musicians. <laughs> One does wonder <laughs> what the situation was there. Anyway, it's unclear who exactly wrote the piece. However, Pratt claimed without any hesitation to have recognized Cage's handwriting, explaining that the little stone in question is a memory, while koan here refers to an enigma or a mystery or perhaps a contradiction. This really sounds like it could be a sati piece. It recalls the first gymnopédie. It rather wanders a bit more than a sati work would, although those works do wander <laughs> quite a bit, but has that mysterious air to it that sati captures so well. It's a piece that sort of drifts along with time, 
It's a great still performance by Shamayu, and just to put us in the mood, we're going to have to hear this as a sample. There's really no suitable place to stop these <laughs> yeah. works and t- except for the very end. And even in some cases, that's not even a suitable place to stop. It's just where the piece ends. Anyway, that is by John Cage, not Eric Satie, all sides of the small stone. Next, we hear Eric Satie's Nyosien Number no. 1. This is also a very famous piano piece. It's played rather quickly here without the sort of teasing mystery we usually get from it from past pianists like uh, Pascal Roger. There's some sudden accents that make it emphatic, and I like the approach. Shamayu, via dynamic changes, gets a lot of expression into the piece that we normally don't hear. I should mention the piano is recorded pretty close, and at my normal volume setting, it sounds loud. I had to turn this quiet music down a bit. And I should also say, because it's recorded close, the bass registers really fully. It's just fantastic. It's actually a really good piano recording. Let's just say a really good, quiet piano recording. Let's hear this... uh, first of the Nyosiens. Most pianists will play this at the same dynamic level, but you notice some mm-hmm. um, you interprets. He gets some uh, accents in there. The third track, John Cage, Prelude for Meditation. We get a big change here right away. This is a prepared piano work, noteworthy for its long silences as well as its sonorities. Now, for those of you who are unaware of this, a prepared piano is a piano that you prepare. You stick things between the strings that are going to alter mm. the sound of the natural piano. And it sounds a bit like a, I don't know, like a, maybe a cymbal arm or one of those hammered string mm. instruments. It's got a lighter sound than the piano normally does. Shamu's touch, by the way, is wonderful in this. He catches a sense of mystery in his spacing, apart from the work's delicate chimes. Let's hear a, a bit of those delicate chimes. This is actually really appealing, I think. Well, I'm going to stop it there. It's actually almost <laughs> over. <Yeah. laughs> it's very short at a minute and 20 seconds. Um, so a lot of space in that piece. John Cage was um, really preoccupied with space. He was really interested in uh, Japanese culture and art. And um, 
the Japanese have always used silence as part of their music. It's really interesting. The mm -hmm. West didn't really um, do this until Debussy started his Prelude de l'Apremedi d'Enfant with um, a silence three bars in. Before him, silence was only used in Western music for dramatic effect. It was like a pause between the... Mm -hmm. <laughs> before the uh, outburst comes. Okay, so Prelude for Meditation by John Cage. Next, we get Eric Satie's very famous Gymnopédie Number no. 1. As with the Nyosian Number no. 1, Chamillou doesn't go for the stiffness of rhythm most pianists bring to this piece. And Gymnopédie, it's a made-up word by Satie, but it recalls the ancient Greek vases and the kind of stiff images on them. So to evoke that, a lot of pianists will often play the rhythm stiffly, like it's just something, you know that's uh, barely animated from those artworks from ancient Greece. But here, Chamillou doesn't do this. It's a little fast here and more expressive than usual. Pianists will usually hold back on expressive approaches from this, but Chamillou gives this dynamic expression and a strong sense of line. I've always loved the major chord at the ends of the work, which Chamillou actually downplays in this um, performance. Mm. We're not going to hear that. We'll hear the, um, the beginning, and I'm sure all of you will recognize this work. amazing things about Satie's music because of the odd harmonies he uses you never really know what's going to come next I mean unless of course you know the work already but um, if you're just kind of following along every note that plays in the melody is a bit of a surprise track five Nyosien number two we're going to hear all of the Nyosiens scattered throughout this album they're sort of the um, one of the unifying qualities or pieces on this album. Again, Shamayu gives this a lot of expression, and I enjoyed his phrasing of the chords in the left hand as well. Track six, Nyosia number three, and I really love this one. Shamayu creates mystery here with a muted approach to the melody. Track seven is John Cage again, his piano piece, A Room. This is a percussive prepared piano piece that I again enjoyed. The sounds are exotic and make the piece mysterious. Shamayu has a real affinity for Cage's prepared piano pieces, and I'm really looking forward to that release in the summer. But let's hear this for now. Let's just hear the beginning of A Room by John Cage. This one has a bit of a Balinese gamelan quality to it, and it's almost over, too. You almost heard the whole work there. <laughs> it's only a minute and 16 seconds. Track 8, John Cage in a Landscape. This is for the regular unprepared piano, and uh, it's the second longest piece on the album at 8 minutes and 4 seconds. Uh, the longest is going to be the last piece, which is also by John Cage, and it's actually very similar to this. 
The landscape is apparently spacious because this simple piece consists of ringing, gently played, arpeggiated material. Shamayu plays with a light, gentle touch and allows the notes to ring via the piano. There are occasional moments where the material forms into appealing, repeating patterns that grab the ear. I'm not going to sample this one because I've got a similar piece at the end that I will sample, so we'll go on. Track 9, Eric Satie, Reverie de l'Enfance de Pantagruel, from his Trois Petites Pièces Montées. I guess that means three mounted pieces. <laughs> three, <laughs> you know, like I guess like they're paintings or something. This is a little different than what we've heard of Satie so far, featuring polyphonic material in the beginning and some intriguing intervals and open fifths in some of the chord voicings. Track 10, Satie, Veritable Prelude Flasque pour un chien. Uh, that means um, true flabby preludes for a dog. <laughs> Figure out what that means. This is, I guess, part of Satie's sort of surrealist bent. Mm. Anyway, rather than being flabby, these preludes are lean, dry, and starkly contrapuntal. This one's quick at 30 seconds and features a bass theme in octaves with running arpeggiated chords in the right hand, and it's got some volume to it, too. Track 11 is the second of the Prelude Flasque pour un chien. It's called Seul à la Maison, Alone at Home. Lighter with a wandering line in the left hand, and the right hand plays wandering melodic material. This is 58 seconds long, very short. The last of these three, track 12, is titled En Joue. This is, which means we play. This is a pretty quick and sounds a bit complex. There are light bursts of popular sounding music themes so think of a carnival or something like that. They quickly disappear. It's a very odd piece. Track 13, Gymnopédie number 2. We will also hear all three Gymnopédie on this album. This is a bit faster than usual, and it's a bit more in line with the recordings of the past. There's a beautiful ringing tone on the melodic notes and gorgeous pianissimos when they come in. Again, I love the key change at the end. Track 14, Le Bain de la Mer. This is from... Uh, Sports et divertissement, and this would be, I guess, one of the divertissement, the enjoyments. This is a stormy and a bit turbulent. It's about the sea, so I guess it's going to... The thunderclouds are coming, and it's very brief at 28 seconds. It resolves to calm very quickly at the end. Track 15, Nyosien number 4. This one has a bass arpeggio over which the Nyosien melody descends. These pieces are unmistakable for their melodic content, and this has some really enjoyable harmonic changes in it. There's a sudden harmonic change on the last chord as well. I guess I should sample this one, because I'm not as familiar with this, and I suspect a lot of our uh, listeners aren't either, so let's hear it. and have that, that odd modal yeah. melody yeah, to them. Yeah, that was an interesting one. They're all pretty interesting, really. I like that 12-note pattern in the left hand that sort of sets everything up there. Yeah, unusual, because the other ones kind of just have the uh, the bass note and the chord, and this one is arpeggiated. Track 16, Eric Satie, La Balançoire. I guess a 
somebody on the balance beam or someone balancing themselves from Sports Edivitissement. This is a one-two walking rhythm. It's lightly dancey, perhaps a person walking at a measured pace on the balance beam, and it's over in 48 seconds. Track 17, John Cage, Swinging. This starts out much the same way that La Balançoire does. Mm. It's very short at 46 seconds, and there's a lot of space. One does wonder if it's uh, inspired by La Balançoire. Now, swinging, I think he means swinging on a on a swing or something. Or yeah, a, yeah. He doesn't mean like swinging like a jazz band <laughs> by any <laughs> means. All right, track uh, 18, Gymnopédie number three. I've always loved the melancholy of this melody. Chamayou plays with rhythmic restraint here and with some gentle coloring in the dynamics. It's a beautiful performance, and I love this one, so let's hear it. I know everybody else loves it too, or you will if you're hearing it for the first time. <laughs> coming next with Eric Satie, do you? <laughs> All right. It's a little bit of a teardrop in that one, too, like a light sort mm. of sadness to it. All right, Nyosian number five. This one's identifiable by its similar modal harmony to the other Nyosians, but it has some intriguing modal scales in it. The left-hand pattern pushes the tempo a bit, but the sprinkling melodic notes in the right hand sound just perfect. I have to sample this, too. This is really interesting. Nyosian number five. That's not going to ever reach a uh, any kind of resolve, so we'll take it out there. It's a pretty interesting one. Nocturne number two. This is track 20 by Satie. This one has sort of a foggy harmony filling this out. There's a heaviness to the piece at the beginning, but it lightens up in the middle at about the 42nd mark. Sensitive playing and drawing out of nuances of harmony by Shamayu in this track. Beautifully sensitive touch at the end, too. Track 21. Sati Le Tango Perpetuel from Sports et Divertissement. This is one of the longer ones of these at 2 minutes and 8 seconds. The tango, of course, would be a divertissement. Chamayou plays this with no pedal, or at least very little. It's very clipped and dry sounding. The rhythm has a well-defined lilt to it. The right-hand material can be funny, but is delicately played here. I like the tapering fade that Chamayou manages at the end, too. This is followed in track 22 by John Cage, Perpetual Tango, uh, which has, you might notice, the same title as Eric Satie's piece, except it's in English. It's highly disjunct, which means the notes of the melody leap about quite a bit. 
It's kind of like a dodecaphonic piece, like a Schoenberg 12-tone piece, with chords and melodic notes falling at odd points of the keyboard. It's quiet, which draws the listener in, and it's almost like a cubist version of the Satie piece we just heard. <laughs> anyway, track 23, Eric Satie, Nyosien, number 6, back on familiar modal and rhythmic ground with another Nyosien. These seem to be acting as signposts on the album, as I mentioned, allowing us to get our bearings in the program. This one gets away from the strong modal feel we've had in the other Nyosians, though, but it is modal. It's just the way the melody is arranged that uh, makes it less kind of stark that way. Track 24, Saraband number 3 by Satie. Cascading downward arpeggios mark the beginning of this work. They then turn upward as the bass moves downward. Shamayu gives admirable shape to this drifting piece. There are occasionally surprising block chords that sound, suddenly giving the harmony a sense of rest, but not where you'd expect. This has a modal feel, it's a pretty work, and Shamayu draws this quality out with his sensitive playing. Track 25, Eric Satie, Songe Creux. This is a brief piece at a minute 45 seconds that begins with some odd harmonic directions for the melody and we quickly fall into something that sounds modal and wander around. This piece sounds like it has no resting place. It's pretty interesting. Let's hear a bit of it. I guess I'd better fade it out there. <laughs> it's a very short piece, too. All right, track 26, Satie, Prelude du Premier Act of La Vocation. This is from uh, Le Fils des Etoiles. There are lots of modes in Satie's music, and I love it for that. This starts with a repeated succession of chords. Eventually, just before the first minute, the music breaks into something closer to melodic and has emphatically played forte chords in the first minute that suddenly disappear into pianissimo with a much more sensitive touch. We can hear a lot of the French music that was to come in these harmonies, from Debussy all the way to Messiaen, and beyond, of course, to John Cage, although he wasn't French. Some wonderful unexpected chords, too, and they make me sit up and smile. Track 27, Eric Satie, Nyosien, number 7. This starts continuously from the previous piece. It sounds like we've come full circle. This sounds like a lot faster higher version of the first Nocien, though it's not exactly the same. Track 28, we have a new composer, James Tenney, who was mentioned in track one. He was the composer whose, uh, whose score John Cage slipped his tribute to Satie into. Anyway, this is called Three Pages in the Shape of a Pair, and in celebration of Eric Satie. Satie himself wrote a piece called uh, Pieces in the Shape of a Pair. <laughs> so it's a very brief, prepared piano piece. And it's highly active and has a large variety of sounds in its 35 seconds. These three pages move by quickly, and there's a lot to hear. I wonder if I'll get in trouble for playing the whole thing, but uh, let's hear it. This is going to really knock you out with the information, the sheer load of information that's in this. Thank you. 
<laughs> okay. Can you imagine playing that? That'd be cool. <laughs> the last piece on the album is John Cage's Dream, track 29. This is a piece for the standard piano. It's the longest composition on the album at just over nine minutes, and it starts out with drifting harmony in the arpeggiated material. It has a bit of a sati profile, and as is so often the case with Cage, there's a lot of space between ideas. The pedal is kept down, especially in the first minute, and the majority of this piece is one note sounding at a time in a continuing melody. Uh, we finally hear block chords at 2 minutes and 47 seconds. I might have missed some before that. Uh, they come up occasionally for emphasis or framing. Basically, this piece is about its sound and its drift, and that seems to be a theme with us tonight. It comes across as soothing and is a peaceful way to end the album. Now, I promised earlier we'd hear a bit of this because I missed the last long cage piece, so let's hear this. chords right there in the first 30 seconds i knew i totally missed them <laughs> okay well anyway th that's pretty much what the entire nine minutes of the piece sounds like although it drifts a lot it does take you on a sort of um unguided journey i guess anyway there's beautiful playing here by shamayu and this is a richly recorded album as well the sound comes up with richness of tone, especially in the bass end. This may be the best recording of Sati ever, and is certainly a milestone in including works by John Cage. It's a Sati recording for a new era of pianists and sets the bar high. Shamayu breaks up what would be the monotony of the Nyosians and Gymnopédie by scattering them throughout the album between contrasting works. A good plan, if you ask me. I have the old uh, Pascal Roger album and it's a great reference point because they're beautiful performances but when you hear all of the Nyosien one after the other they do sort of yeah that that uh odd modal harmony just kind of or modal melody just kind of does kind of start to wear you out it's a pretty quiet album overall with the piano recorded closely the richness of the instruments tone registering strongly on the excellent recording the bass comes up sounding full and those bass notes keep resounding in sati's music so this is important it took me a while to give this a close listen, but it can easily be listened to straight through. It doesn't get dull due to the program, with Cage's music appearing at times. By the way, if you decide that this is a, a relaxing album that you want to play at bedtime, I'd be curious to know what kind of dreams it gives you, because those drifting harmonies are really going to take you to an odd place, I think, in your brain. If you try to do that, write to us and let us know what the result was. Anyway, this is an excellent album. Highly, highly recommended, especially if you like the music of Eric Satie. Satie's music always has enough space for you to get inside and kind mm. of enjoy the scenery because it's kind of surrounding you rather than going in a direction. But here, this interesting programming, the order and separation of pieces, makes you experience the familiar pieces differently than before especially in conjunction with Cage's works. And you never know if Cage will give you something quite beautiful or 
something that will just make you scratch your head and wonder what just happened. And that makes this program really interesting as well. And I liked having the dream as a closer to the program. Uh, you get kind of settled on something that's longer and made me think back to everything I had heard. And I've listened to this quite a few times. I have a feeling it's going to hold my attention for a while. Yeah, mine too. I think I'll be returning to this uh, as the years go by. All right, the third um, classical recording is um, by the uh, the most performed living composer in the world, Arvo Pert. He's Estonian. And this is a, a new ECM new series uh, recording called uh, Tractus. Now, ECM has recorded a lot of Arvo Pert's most famous re recordings over the years. So it's always a big event when they put out a new one. So I had to hear this one right away. This is by the Estonian Philharmonic Chamber Choir, the Tallinn Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Toni Kaljuste, and it features Maria Listra as soprano on one track. The notes inform us that the title Tractus refers to a series of theological writings, Tracts for the Times, published between 1833 and 1841, which the English Cardinal and Saint John Henry Newman, who lived from 1801 to 1890, initiated. The title can also be traced back to an ancient form of singing, known as early as the 3rd century, contained in the Requiem or Lenten Mass. The Tractus has an earnest character and is more appropriate substitute for the jubilant Alleluia in the Mass Liturgy. Pert's Tintinabuli technique was created in 1976, but it has roots in Gregorian chant and the polyphony of the Franco-Flemish school, so it has this very old sort of uh, feeling to it. The first piece on this album is called The Littlemore Tractus for Mixed Choir and Orchestra, composed in the year 2000 and then uh, arranged in uh, 2022, arranged by Tonu Kaljusta for this um, ensemble. It was originally for choir and organ, which really would have been something to hear. Yeah. The booklet notes say the text, which consists of the final lines of a sermon preached in Littlemore in 1843 by John Henry Newman, set the mood for the whole recording. The work is dedicated to the 200th anniversary of Newman, who was an expert in the early Christian Desert Fathers, who actually interests me a lot as well. The words invite the listener to pause at the end of the day, think back on its busyness, and find calmness and make peace with the past. It's like an evening prayer, but it is also the prayer at the closing of life. The hymn unites the works on this album under a common denominator. They are like a tractus in the liturgy of human life, a pause to look inwards and to perceive the present in eternity. To evoke an archaic atmosphere, the work uses drones in fifths and the parallel movement of fifths and fourths, characteristic to medieval polyphony, as well as of the faux bourdon or false drone technique, where the droning notes will move toward cadences or for embellishment at times. So this starts with a droning vibratoless strings and dripping harp notes to set the mood. The choral singing is fairly traditional in a block chord sense in this piece. That means that the words, he wants the words to be understood when you write like this. There's bell percussion and strings, both discreetly used. The choir sing the text one syllable at a time, and the text itself is gorgeous and very inspiring. The work's 7 minutes and 50 seconds move slowly, slowing down the mind of the listener with it, so he can, or she can, contemplate the text and the piece. The tension, dynamic, and tonality all rise until a climax is reached on the words, Then in his mercy may he give us a safe lodging. 
The piece then decrescendos to its initial quietness. The performance and recording are both what we've come to expect from this ensemble and record label, again with Manfred Eicher as producer. So let's uh, sample this and get us in the Arvo Parrot mood. And that's a very long sample. It takes a long time for the events in Parrot's music to play mm. out. So I wanted to get that in. Okay, tracks two through eight are pretty famous pieces in their choral guise. These are the greater antiphons one through seven. For string orchestra here, they were originally written in 1988 and were called the seven Magnificat antiphons. Texts have shaped this music and we've heard them on other recordings. But here we have only the instruments. This is the first recording of this instrumental version, and here they have a more chamber sound to them. So track two, which is um, the first of the antiphons, is called O Wisdom. And despite these being instrumental versions of the antiphons, the CD booklet gives the texts. Uh, this particular one works well with the high violins, providing the occasional flicker of starlight we hear the sopranos give in the originals. It goes by pretty fast. Let's sample this. I really actually like this better than the choir version, but we still get that quality here. Let's listen to this. Track three, O Adonai, this is the second of the antiphons. This one is magical vocally with its low bass. And here it comes across as droning. The bass doesn't quite register in the same way as in the choral version, but we get a sense of the ancient sound that drones provide. It's very atmospheric in this version. I do like the sound Parrot is getting from the strings in this. Track four, O Root of Jesse. Here we have string effects, pizzicati at the beginning, and some softly played harsh harmonies. This has a more urgent quality to it. Track five, O Key of David. This sounds urgent from the beginning. There's a good reverb bloom on the high strings fortissimo attack in the first minute. Track six, O Morning Star. Mellow, very quiet strings on this. The open-ended melodic quality at the high end registers well like this. Track seven, O King of All People. More rhythm is heard here. It's still gently played. The insistence of the repeated note in the cellos and violins is strongly felt when the words aren't present. Track eight, O Emmanuel. Again, the one-two rhythm in four-four is strongly felt here. 
since there are no words to concentrate on, the piece does a slow crescendo and the tone rises until there's a forte at the one minute mark. In the second minute, we're back to the softer dynamic of the opening and the strings are heard in their vibratoless form. Beautiful as all of these are to listen to in this version, they all lose something without the choir participating. There's more power, more of a sense of musical roots in the choral version. The best way to get to know these is in their original choral version called Seven Magnificat Antiphons, which is sung in German. But these are really nicely performed here, and they're pretty calm and calming, as you might have noticed from the sample of the first one. Track 9, Cantique de Degrés, for Mixed Choir and Orchestra, composed in 1999 and um, revised in 2002. This is a setting of Psalm 121, which has a very comforting text. Cantique de Degré is the French name for pilgrimage songs. It's translated as Song of Ascents and refers to the ascent up the stairs leading to the Temple of Solomon, symbolizing the gradual and introspective journey towards the heavenly Jerusalem. Tonality changes with each verse, rising gradually as if to reflect the title of the work. It was commissioned by Princess Caroline to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the coronation of her father, Prince Rainier III of Monaco. So we hear the choir again in the Latin language piece here. The orchestration includes brass, which come in to play some lightly harsh chords. The choir is in the high end and sounds heavenly over the changing light rhythms and timbres of the orchestration. The choir generally sings quietly in this piece as the orchestra goes through changes in dynamics. The choir is never drowned out, but one has to pay careful attention to follow the text. Let's sample one of the bolder parts of the score where the chorus sings Dominus custodit te, Dominus umbraculum tuum, which means the Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. Track 10, Sequentia, for string, orchestra, and percussion. So the piece is not connected to any text, but is based on the musical fragments of the middle section of the orchestral work La Sindone, which is the title that refers to the Shroud of Turin. It was composed for Adam's Passion, a production by Robert Wilson. I like the high, bloodless strings at the beginning, almost squeaking like the sound of a wet finger makes over the rim of a wine glass. If you've heard La Sindona, this has a familiar, fragmentary, glimpsing parts of the whole quality for the phrasing. This remains distant, quiet, and mysterious throughout. The next work, track 11, L'Abbe Agaton, for soprano and string orchestra, and this is composed in 2004, revised in 2008, and features Maria Listra as the soprano soloist. It was commissioned by the Beauvais Cello Octet, the town of Beauvais lies near the ruins of one of the oldest leper houses in Europe. The house reminded Parrot of a 4th century legend about the hermit Agathon and his encounter with a leper. 
Now, I actually know this story a little differently, but let's uh, take a look at this. The story goes that Agathon saw the leper, who's also called the paralytic in some versions of the stories, and you'll see why in a minute. The paralytic actually makes more sense. He sees this leper, and anyway, this has to be a leper in this particular version, at the roadside, and the leper asks to be carried to the market, and Agathon carried him. The man asked Agathon to buy him things, and Agathon used all the money he made from a sale to buy the things the leper wanted. When they finished, Agathon brought the leper back to where he found him, as the man had asked, and the man told Agathon he had divine virtues and suddenly disappeared. It was not a leper or a paralytic, but an angel who had come to test him. The work is like a small, dramatic scene. That's Hebrews 13.2. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Yes. That's it. That's sort of what's happening here. Agathon carrying the leper to the market on his shoulders is depicted by the pacing movement of the strings. The dialogue between Agathon and the angel, disguised as the leper, is conveyed via the contrast between tonal music and unearthly polytonal harmony. The appearance of the angel is marked by a change of texture in the rising arpeggios of the strings, while his departure is visualized by the gradual ascent of the soprano melody to a tessitura that borders on the ethereal. I want to mention, by the way, the French words here talk about a leper, but I've always heard the story as the um, person who has to be carried to the market as a paralytic. He can't walk. And it makes more sense because leprosy is contagious <laughs> so you wouldn't want to bring a leper into a market you know everybody might catch what he has whereas a paralysis is not contagious anyway it does come in the leper version though and especially in this case it's sung in french it starts with hesitant fragmentary harmonized string lines we hear the soprano sing the narration line over staccato strings the string accompaniment changes under the soprano and it's not only different for the two characters, but different each time each character speaks. Let's hear the accompaniment where the angel speaks. So I'm going to start this about three minutes in. Okay, so there you get an idea of the sound world of this piece, but it really needs to be heard all the way through because it's um, got a narrative quality to it, and it'll carry you along. Uh, the text we heard, by the way, is, For mercy's sake, take me there to the market. Par charité, porte-moi là-bas. The entire piece has a narrative quality. It's like listening to a story with musical accompaniment. It's enjoyable to listen to, and it's a piece I'd like to get to know better by repeated listening. Uh, Maria Listra gets a lot of tonal and dynamic range into her performance. Track 12, These Words for String Orchestra and Percussion, composed in the year 2008. This was originally an orchestral work, oddly given the title, because these words, you would think there would be words, but there aren't. It's based on a fragment from the Orthodox Canon to the Guardian Angel, 
While it borrows its title from Shakespeare's Hamlet, it's a prayer for salvation from human wrongdoing and weakness, which Parrot has cloaked in music with unstable and dissonant intervals. And it was commissioned by the Danish Leonie Sonning Music Foundation. And, and boy, do we need a prayer for salvation from human <laughs> wrongdoing and weakness now, don't we? Anyway, it starts with bloodless strings, followed by warm pizzicati in the same strings. Immediate contrast comes up. The recording is vivid and the bass has impact. The quieter light string chords also registering fully, despite the almost feathery texture. At 2 minutes and 20 seconds, it sounds like there's a marimba, and I really enjoyed the combination of this and the pizzicato in the strings, so let's um, sample that part. I think people listening to this uh, podcast in a car really aren't going to hear too much of this. There's a lot of subtlety and detail in this work. Strings dominate the next section with only light percussion from the bell-like metal percussion. Booming bass drum is heard the 7th and 8th minutes vividly captured on the recording in a more intense part of the work. The dynamics taper off from that point until they arrive at the end with quiet pizzicati in a rhythm that suddenly stops. Track 13, Veni Creator, for Mixed Choir and Orchestra, uh, composed 2006, revised 2009. In this piece, wisps of strings like morning fog accompany the equally wispy choir, which slowly comes together into audibility and starts singing the text lightly in the sopranos. Tenors have a second verse, and then male and female voices alternate, combining at moments. It's a beautiful, gentle piece, and brief at three minutes long. You might notice I'm not really sampling too much from this album because I feel like a lot of it's really quiet. I mean, you get a good mm-hmm. idea of what that sounds like from the samples I've given already. I'm afraid it won't register as well. Anyway, track 14, Vater Unser, for Mixed Choir, Piano, and String Orchestra, composed 2005, a revised 2019, and arranged by Tonu Kurwitz. This features Marit Gerrit's Traxmann on the piano, and it's set to the German text of the Our Father Prayer. This has a free melody and simple accompanying harmony. It begins in minor and ends in major. The piano starts this off, which is a welcome new timbre. It's got the quality of Arvel Perret compositions for piano, very spacious, with lines that reach upward without resolution. Then pause and try again. The choir, I guess, completes the reach with the prayer. It's sung in block harmony. The harmonization is very straightforward in the choir. We don't get the major key until the very end. So this is another in a long line of Arvo Parrot recordings by ECM Records, ECM New Series Records, to get familiar with. And these works are all worth getting to know. The recording has the same sensitivity and vividness of many recordings of Parrot's music on ECM, with Manfred Eicher at the production desk knowing exactly how to record this music. 
The Tallinn Chamber Orchestra under Tanu Kaljusta has recorded a lot of Pert's music in the past, and this recording stands with the rest as excellent revelatory interpretations of Pert's music. The entire program is about rest, but despite the gentleness of most of the recording, there are moments that will jolt you out of sleep or relaxation if you put it on and decide to doze off into the piece the choir sings about throughout. I don't know how essential the works on the album are, but a good deal of them are heard on record for the first time, and fans of Pert's music need not hesitate. I was really drawn into the mystery, depth, and beauty of these little sound worlds that Pert yeah. creates. But as you say, he always takes time to develop things, so you have to be patient. Yeah, if you could even use that word develop, because it's... Uh, Sometimes know, it's, it's very sparse, yeah. Yeah. But I think this is very enjoyable and contemplative music. You just need to give yourself a distraction-free environment and the time to let them sort of unfold to you. It's not something you want to listen to while you're doing something else. If you do mm-hmm. that, and as you say, a lot of it is very quiet, so you want a quiet background. There's a lot to enjoy and to let come out to you in these works. Yeah, Paris music really is ideal for our current time. It's very calming and really does almost sort of reach out and calm you down if you're kind mm-hmm. of in this agitated state. So it's it's a real gift that he's been giving us. It's really stunning music. It has a so. genuine power to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I highly recommend it. If you don't know Avraparts music, I absolutely recommend that you get to know it. All right, over on the jazz side this evening, we've got a lot of variety in instrumentation and location. I'm going to start things out with a drum-led trio by drummer John Bishop. It's called Antwerp on Origin Records, came out November 17th. Now, drummer John Bishop is from Seattle. He was a member of piano great Hal Galper's Rubato Trio over the last 15 years. Also, the band Scenes with guitarist John Stowell for another 20 years or so. And the piano trio New Stories with Doug Miller and Mark Seals, which started way back in the mid-1980s. This is his first album as a leader in 15 years, and he met the bassist and pianist in this trio in Belgium in 2010 through a quartet with a trumpeter named Chad McCullough. And they went on to do yearly tours, performing 100-plus concerts, and releasing three albums over eight years. And I think that experience together shows through in this recording, which is in trio format. So John Bishop on drums, Brum Vader's on piano, and Pete Ferbist on bass. And this was recorded in Antwerp, Belgium, in May of 2023. All right, we're going to start out with a track here called Rukšičlos. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that, which means reckless. There's a 16-measure intro of rhythmic chords, and then the melody section begins. I'm not really sure of the structure here, but I like the floating phrasing that Vader's uses over Bishop's dancing cymbals. It reaches some rising chiming notes in 31 measures, and Vader's launches into improvisations, and Ferbist is really propelling the motion with the bass lines, really works up to a percussive and ringing climax. And let's check some of that climax out here a little bit into the tune. Thank you. 
lots of ringing going on there. Phillips gets a bass solo next, and then they vamp on the intro chords idea for Bishop to do some work around the drum kit. They get back to a portion of the melody, but it turns into an insistent pulsing piano frenzy, then percussive chords and some final rubato holds. Very exciting start to the recording. Track two, Trip the Light Fantastic, which I believe is a phrase from a John Milton poem. Here it's a tune by pianist Hal Galper, and also the title of his 2011 recording on Origin Records, which Bishop was a member of. Well, it's a relaxed waltz feel with a rising and falling bass line. There's an eight measure intro. The melody seems to be a 40 measure construction with a repeating first eight measure section. It builds harmonic tension as it goes along. Vader's uses rising and falling lines where the bass has switched to ringing repeated notes. And Bishop has a lot of textured cymbal work going on and interesting fills. As Vader's moves into improvisations, his left hand has weighty ringing chords and his right hand has dancing rhythmic figures and runs. And Bishop builds up with heavier drumming and then it comes down quiet for a bass solo from Fairbest. He's making it sing up high on the bass and Vader's really pounds it out with some angsty huge chords when they return to the melody, but gets it all out and everything calms down for a soft ending. Let's hear some of that going on uh, later on in the tune. sense of gravity that suddenly lightens up there. I like that feel. All right, track three is Pointing at the Moon. This is a Pete Fairbest original composition. This has a gentle feel and melody. After an eight measure intro with light piano, Fairbest gets the 16 measure melody on bass before Vader's takes a turn on piano. And let's hear this one get started. This time with a couple rounds of improvisations. Vader's next, focusing on snappy rhythmic figures even in his longer lines, and he moves into more ringing chord ideas. It gets quieter with soft cymbal traces from Bishop as high piano lines dance over ringing bass to a slowed down ending. 
track four, Bull, an original by Pete Ferbist. This has a real driving 6-8 rhythm, and Bishop's cymbals sound great right from the 8-measure intro. You'll get the bull significance when you hear the Spanish-tinged harmony. There's a cool effect of rushed ends of melody phrases and pauses, like a bull charging and then slowing up after he's reached his target. Vader's builds improvisations over that idea, and Ferbus's snappy bass is really locking in with Bishop. And Bishop gets to work up some excitement on the drums on this one, too, so let's hear him do a bit of that later in the tune to the end. Track five is Lawns. This is a tune by Carla Blay of her Carla Blay Sextet recording from 1987. It's a delicate, sustained, rubato, ringing solo piano intro. This is a slow, pretty ballad with a sparse 16-measure melody and great harmonies. It starts out on this nice G major 7 chord, and it goes to G minor 6, and you can really enjoy the harmonic progressions in this one. Vader's gives higher decorations the second time around the melody, and Ferbist has a really singing out bass solo on this one. Vader's is rhythmic and playful on his solo, and after working it up, they pull it back for a softer ending. Track six is called The Same Melody. This is a Vader's original composition. There's a dreamy intro with ringing piano and great cymbals. I think the title refers to the simple melody line that gets modulated around with the changing chords. Seems to be about 20 measures. Then Vader's is into some improvisations. The floating 8-beat feel of the tune transforms into a real driving groove with some great interaction between Ferbist and Bishop. And let's hear some of that happening a little bit into the tune. singing bass solo from Fairbest on this tune and pretty good interaction between all the players. Track 7 for Less Than Nothing, another 
Ferbus original. A solo bass intro builds suspense. Bishop joins in with toms and cymbals, and the two of them are interacting until Vader's adds some piano lines into ringing chords after two minutes. A slow steady beat forms from the free flow into a melody and piano flourishes, and Bishop really creates a wall of drum sound with explosive accents. And let's hear a little bit of that happening. Track 8, Two for the Road, Henry Mancini. It's from the soundtrack from the 1967 movie with Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. It's a slow ballad, a pretty 32-measure melody. Ferbus takes the first half on bass and Vader's the second half. Both of them also get a solo, a really gentle, ringing one from Vader's on here. There's a lot of space and delicate drum work from Bishop. Really restrained beauty on this tune. The recording's going to end up on the ninth track called Contemplative of Vader's Original as well. This one has an interesting tense atmosphere, a loping 6-8 feel and minor harmonies with big chords. The whole thing seems to be built around just a repeating eight-measure harmonic sequence, but it's one that has enough tension and release built in to be complete in itself. It's kind of like we heard with uh, Czech pianist uh, Emil Wiklitsky. You know, he can create something big out of just a small segment of uh, melody and then just rework it endlessly. There's ringing chords and Bishop's enveloping drum sound make this really intense. So check out some of this atmosphere in this tune. and it builds up with more piano and then gets quiet for a contemplative ending. And that's it. It's a very exciting recording. 
Bishop's a drummer who gives you lots to listen to in textures. Vader's is a super dynamic pianist, but he can be soft and subtle too. Great bass leads and solos from Furbist as well. Mostly varied moods of original material that flows freely, but nice choices of tunes by Hal Galper, Carla Blay, and Henry Mancini to round out the program. The interplay and connection in this trio that comes from long association is sure to impress and please your ears. Yeah, it was the pianist's style on this album that really interested me. Mm. I thought he had like two like main sounds. There was a gentle sort of pastel one on chords, and there was a more emphatic, solidly struck one with more like aggressive melodies. It really leaped out of the piano and rang out. Mm. He also had a way of, like, I think you mentioned this, of wandering from harmony to harmony. Uh, that really intrigued me. I mean, we just heard the... Uh, you know, the Satie album, the classical. Right, right. And then this kind of reminded me a bit of that too. There's a lot of wandering harmony on this, uh, on the yeah. albums we heard this week. It's kind of funny that we chose those recordings. I also enjoyed the bass melodic style of soloing when he got the chance. Uh, he favored the high end of the instrument and had a touching way of presenting his ideas. I think my favorite track was the rather understated Lawns. That's the um, Carla play piece right right gorgeous piano tone on that and the bass solo was appealing there and really all of this was enjoyable i warmed to the pianist style as it went and i should compliment drummer john bishop he's the leader for his sensitive and at times complex but light playing and really just giving the spotlight uh, to the pianist as so many drummers do he gave his two partners many chances to shine and drew the ear for interesting rhythmic combinations at times so yeah pretty a little different too and a pretty mm. intriguing album yeah, you can just tell these guys have that synergy from playing together so much. Hmm. That's what I love about a trio. All right, something completely different then for oh, the next yeah. recording. We're going to hear from Reed player, Gregory Tardy. His release, In His Timing, this is uh, under his own name and also WJ3 Records, and this came out November 24th. Born into a musical family, Gregory Tardy began his musical studies with classical clarinet. And in high school, he excelled in music, and he studied with renowned clarinetists Russell Dagon and Jack Snaverly. And he began preparing for a symphony career, but over time he got asked to play sax and failing missing gaps in different groups. And although he never practiced the saxophone seriously, he began getting calls to play local funk gigs in the Milwaukee area. And then his older brother, who got him to listen to some jazz, uh, specifically John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk playing Monk's Mood. And then that changed his mind to become a jazz musician. Now, I've heard uh, Gregory Tardy going all the way back to a recording I really like by Tom Harrell, 1998's The Art of Rhythm. And we've heard him a few times on the podcast. Episode 7 with Michael Deese on Give It All You've Got. Episode 77, he was part of the group in Todd Marcus's In the Valley, a recording we really liked a lot. Yeah, that was... Uh... The bass clarinetist there. And then most recently with Joel Harrison, episode 126, uh, Anthem of Unity. And he was on tenor and a little clarinet on there too. There's not a lot of information on this recording out there because it's a kind of independent release. I did write to Gregory through Bandcamp, but I didn't get any answer back in time. So I'm not sure about the origin of some of the compositions. But from his Facebook page, he says, In his timing refers to having patience awaiting God's perfect provision from uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2. There is a time and season for every purpose under heaven. 
Atardi says, quote, I've been waiting many years to do a clarinet project, but for various reasons, it has never felt like the right time until now. And they say, better late than never. And I agree. Kind of nice to hear a clarinet album. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, along with him, an interesting tonal blend we're going to get here with Regina Carter, the great violinist on this recording, and a really smoking rhythm section too. Tabor Gable on piano, Matthew Parrish on bass, and Avister Garnett on drums. Well, clarinet and violin are never instruments we're in danger of hearing too much of on jazz releases, yeah. so I decided we'd definitely get this one in the program. We're going to start out with an interesting take on an old classic, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Music by Charles H. Gabriel. The lyrics for this tune were by Ada Habershon. It's kind of a Christian hymn. It was published in Alexander's Gospel Songs. Uh, this one caught me right away from the funky rhythmic bass intro from Parrish and then the modern jazz harmony in Gable's piano chords, which is in big contrast to the kind of gospel treatment I've heard on this tune traditionally. Carter comes in with the melody, and Tardy joins in in the lower register of his instrument. And we can get all of those things that I just mentioned in with a one-minute little preview at the beginning. So let's do that. to a swing over walking bass for a section. Then it's going to head back to those cool snappy bass figures. And Carter's going to get a solo. And it's a really fun one with a mix of swinging melodic ideas and a little hint of hoedown in there as well. And this is really her solo showcase on the album. So I'm just going to go right back and we're going to hear a little bit more of that so we can hear some of her nice playing. Tardy follows and his clarinet is fluid with great tone all the way up into the high register. Gable gets a snappy rhythmic piano solo too. And Carter and Tardy are back for some harmonized melody lines before getting some adventurous, simultaneous, and traded improvisations to a fade out. I'm having fun with this recording already. 
Yeah, me too. Except that the piece fade out. The fade out. out. Mike doesn't like the fades out. Yeah, there, there are actually a few fade outs on this album. <laughs> yeah, next tune fades out as well. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is, I've never been in love before. Frank Loser, 1950 from Guys and Dolls. Carter sits this one out. You'll probably know the famous melody, but they give it an interesting eight-measure intro that disguises the meter and has some interesting clarinet phrases. When Tardy gets to the melody, his tone and articulation are great. The little dips to low notes are so smooth. That classical background and control shine through, and he really makes it sing up in the high register. They bring back the intro section as a transition to his solo, and it's effortless and flowing. So let's hear some of his clarinet playing on this track. has a piano solo that shows off his tone and touch nicely too before tardy's back from the b section of the melody gets an outro like the intro with some nice drum kit and snare work from garnett to fade out track three is the roman road and i don't know this must be an original it kind of matches a lot of the spiritual christian concepts on the album Tardy starts it out solo with a fun lick of intervals into trills in a 3-4 meter for 8 measures. The rhythm section picks up the idea for a couple rounds, and Tardy comes in with the melody, and Carter joins in phrases, and the two do some nice waltzing together for 24 measures. Gable has a real dazzling piano solo on this one, so it might be a good place to hear some of his playing. Tardy has a suave start to his solo with some floating phrases with pitch play before some fluttering double-time phrases through all the registers. A nice bass solo from Parrish, too, before the clarinet and violin are back with another melody exposition. Track 4 is the title track in his timing. It's delicate. There's a ringing 8-measure piano intro. Then Carter and Tardy work intimately together on 8-measure melody phrases. The sections have an extra measure of space between them that makes a nice cushion and Parrish gets some bowed bass in too, which sounds great under the violin. Let's just hear a little taste of that into the tune. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Tardy has a melodic and wonderfully toned solo section on this song as well. Track five, Squatty Roo. Hmm. All the way back to 1941 or 42 for Johnny Hodges. It's time to get the blood pumping again with this swinging rhythm changes tune from Johnny Hodges, Duke Ellington's great alto sax soloist. Carter and Tardy work the melody together on this one and trade off playful eight-measure solo phrases, never running out of ideas. Track six is The Tree of Life, I'm assuming another Tardy original. Back to a more gentle mood with a flowing legato melody. Carter starts it out, but Tardy weaves in clarinet lines and they work together over the 32-measure melody. Tardy's clarinet solo here starts in the lower register and then works higher. This is one of the highlights of the recording, so let's hear the whole clarinet solo on this one. does some tasty piano soloing as well and Parrish digs in on the bass underneath him. Carter gets a spot too before they get back to the melody. I'm going to assume all the rest of the tunes here are original compositions. Cloud Dance track 7, a gently floating 24 measure waltz melody. Carter takes its solo the first time after an 8 measure intro and then Tardy joins in for a round together. Parrish is up for a bass solo on this one with assured articulation and great tone. Solos also from Tardy and Gable before another violin and clarinet melody section. Track 8 is The Sign of Jonah. This one has a lot of complex syncopation and accents for an interesting melody uh, before you can feel a 4-beat pulse develop. Uh, Check out this complicated rhythm. piano solo that works into dancing lines after some interjections from Tardy who gets a free flying solo on this one as well. Garnett and Parrish keep things percolating underneath. 
Track nine, the last shall be first. This has a seductive melody in the warmer lower clarinet register. Tardy takes it through twice. It's a 16 measure melody with an extra measure for pickup lines and then a final eight measure section to a solo from Gable with little bluesy flavorings. Parrish's bass pulses sound great underneath. It gets a lifting modulation when Tardy returns on melody phrases, launching into improvisations and a real frenzy of flutters over tight drum and bass grooves to the end. And the recording finishes with track 10, Crazy Love, a very slow, pretty ballad melody, just one time through the AABA 32 measure melody with a little coda ending. It's mostly a duet for Tardy and Gable, but Parrish adds some bowed bass in the final section, and Tardy works some more improvisations into the B part of the melody. Again, lovely tone and playing. So I've long enjoyed Tardy's saxophone playing, and this is a great setting to hear his clarinet, where he started his musical journey. Fabulous technique and tone and great improvised ideas. I like the spiritual themes, and the close interaction with Regina Carter's violin is intimate and a pleasing timbre match. Great rhythm section here, too, with standout solos from Gable on piano. Yeah, this, this is a pretty warm, enjoyable album, I thought. And like you said, it's good to hear the clarinet and violin on a jazz yeah. album. They've both become pretty rare. We used to hear them a little more often in the past. Both musicians move between blue jazzy phrases and lines with a classical feel to them. I really enjoyed the piano voicings on this album. The pianist brings a good deal of warmth. And the bass solos are pretty good, too. Yeah. Yeah, I found them conversational like I'm being told a secret. You know, he has that kind of <laughs> quality to him or the bass solos i feel like i was listening into a private conversation and that always appeals to me of course <laughs> right uh solid and warm throughout and i love the uh, new sonorities which is nice to hear something you know a little different sounding i really yeah. enjoyed this yeah something different and i liked mm. it and you're all invited to join our private conversation here every week yeah at adult music but we're not done yet no we're not <laughs> done yet strap in for number three yeah Abdu Salim's Elegante on Black Stamp Music, whatever that label is, and that first time for everything came out November 17th. Here's some information on Mr. Abdul Salim, taken from the Jazz Music Archives, which was taken from his website, which is no longer accessible. Born in Gilmore, Texas in 1950, so I guess that would make him 73. He entered Texas Southern University at Houston, Texas, and while he was there, he became friends with Arnett Cobb, toured with Johnny Copeland, and another summertime uh, stint was with Joe Turner. From 1970 to 1978, he was in the U.S. Navy as a radar technician, and then he played in local groups wherever he was stationed. He played R&B, rock, symphony orchestras, country and western groups, gospel choirs. Then he was over in Spain. From 1978 to 79, he returned to Texas and he studied classical harmony at Texas College and taught saxophone. From 79 to 83, he was back in the U.S. Army, acting as an instructor in music theory and ear training in the Navy School of Music in Norfolk. And 1981, he was in South Korea. And then later on, he was over in Spain during the summer of 1983. And that's kind of like where the information leaves off. So I don't know where he's been. Kind of an enigma, Abdul Salim. There's a few recordings out there. However, while he was in Spain and also southern France, he's worked with some other big names, Lou Donaldson, Lonnie Smith, Idris Muhammad, and uh, also John Hicks. 
Here, he seems to be with a group of younger French musicians, and my first impression was of a 1960s vibe with a sense of spiritual jazz, so I thought we'd go out on a limb for some Abdul Salim tonight. So, hmm. Abdul Salim is listed as the conductor, composer, arranger, and saxophonist. He also plays flute on here. Got some French players. Maxime Delporte on bass. Rémy Leclerc, piano. Olivier Sabatier, trombone. Nicolas Gardel on trumpet. And Frédéric Petitpré on drums. All right, we're going to start the recording out. As I mentioned, uh, all original compositions by Salim Jibril. And all right, let's get into our 60s mood and check this out. There's an eight-measure intro. The three horns sound thick in the arrangement. We get a 32-measure AABA form with an extra four measures at the end into a solo break for Gardel to get going on the trumpet. Classic change-ups from Latin to swing like we love from back in the 60s. Let's just get into this and check this out right away. That's a pretty smoky one, too. It yeah, it is. Good. It's a really fun solo. Nice phrasing yeah. and a few harmonic adventures in there, which I always like. The four-measure tag is back for the horns to kick in Salim next on tenor sax, who starts out with some snake-charming modes and has some nice triplet figures on the B section of the tune. I like his gutsy tone here. Sabatier gets a trombone solo, too, with a buoyant flair and full tone, and Leclerc has a round on piano, getting into chiming chords. Next, there are some new composed horn lines to get four-measure exchanges with Petipre on drums before another run through the melody. Track two is called The Next Blues. This one has a very Mingus-like playfulness to the alternating horn lines and drums over the 12-bar blues melody. Well, we'll just have to check this one out as well, because it's just really cool. First on a trombone solo over just the walking bass, but the other horns have fun sporadic hits. 
The drums and piano join back in, and ooh, a shift up to double time for Gardel's trumpet solo to keep things interesting. Uh, it's a fine, playful solo, so I think we should bring it back in to hear some of that. Porte is next on a bass solo with a contrasting sleepy kind of start and fun glisses. Then Salim gets some solo four measure trading with Petitpré's drums before they take it through the melody once more. And again, just to the seventh measure the second time for a sudden ending. Track three is the title track, Elegante. A bossa feel for this one. There's an eight measure intro and a breezy, nicely harmonized 40 measure horn melody with Salim on flute. And then he's going to continue on for a flute solo, and that's a real treat. So let's check some of that out. Gardel's up next on trumpet with soft but snappy phrases, really nice Latin ballad playing style. Trombone and flute come in behind him with backing phrases. Leclerc has a snappy piano solo too, and the horns back him as well, and things shift up into a samba feel for a stretch with animated horns before pulling back to the relaxed bossa for a melody section again. It's a really cool change up and don't miss that one. Track four, Amira's Dance, another great 60s mood tune, a hypnotic minor bass ostinato with the rhythm section gets you in a trance for 16 measures. Then the melody structure is kind of interesting with seductive horn lines and stop up rhythm section underneath, 48 measures in total with one swinging section starting from the 25th measure. And Salim is up first on tenor here, so let's hear some tenor playing from his solo. Thank you. 
guys next on trombone. Starting out with longing somber lines, but he gets the lube going on the slide over the double time really nicely. Leclerc's solo is all double time, so he gets the double espresso rating for his piano solo that gets really popping on this one. There's some scooping horn line vamping for Petre to beat out some action on the drums into another run through the melody. You might as well just put this one on repeat all afternoon and hmm. just keep listening to it. Track five, Salam Salim. This is a slow and pretty ballad. One measure of ringing piano chords brings in the horn melody with Salim front and center on sax, but nicely harmonized by the brass. 23 measure melody. And then Gardel is up for a solo, definitely on flugelhorn here with a big tone. Sabatier gets to take over with some great bone lines. Leclerc has some tasty piano to add in with clear ringing articulation, and Salim gets a solo too. It sounds a bit distant from the mic on this tune, but with gentle flowing phrases. He gets back to the last section of the melody and is joined by backing horns to the end. Track 6, Do's Do's Blues. That's D-U-P-S-D-U-E-S. Another fun one, but with a lot of different sections. There's an eight measure drum intro, eight measures of horns, another eight with horns and then drum. The main melody section is 16 measures with a shift to Latin in the second half, a measure of drum fills and then around that pattern again, and then another fill measure and then 16 more measures similar to the intro. Uh, it sounds kind of crazy, but let's hear it get going a bit. First for an edgy tenor solo, Leclerc has a piano solo that gets some exciting horn lines with unpredictable hits, and Gardel gets one on trumpet with a change up to a funkier drum beat. Sabatier joins in with him on trombone and it gets a kind of a New Orleans spirit going, getting Salim to join in on the action too. Then there are some fun horn lines without rhythm section. Let's hear what that sounds like uh, a little bit later in the tune. there and it works back into the beginning section and one round of the 16 measure melody pattern to wrap it up. The recording ends up with track 7 Urgent. Alright I'm just gonna play it. Good 
hurts to fade out. <laughs> well, Gardner gets to solo on there uh, freely, just over the drum for quite a while, before piano and bass join back in, and then he keeps on blowing with lots of ideas. Salim has a soulful solo on this one too, and Leclerc has a jumpy piano solo on here, and we haven't given him any ear time, so let's check that out on this tune. great horn lines from there into drum breaks building up tension to a final run through the melody and that's it if you're a fan of 60s jazz it will be pretty much impossible not to enjoy this recording salim serves up all the things we like from that era lots of minor modes latin swing switch-ups with some surprises and well-arranged tunes the french musicians are up to the task with especially good trumpet and trombone solos to match salim's sax and flute my one complaint about the recording is that the sound quality is a little bit cloudy, <laughs> sounding like it may have actually come from the 60s, uh, even though a lot of those recordings are crystal clear. Yeah, I think they were going for that 60s sound, actually, when they uh, recorded this. The recording gave the music or the playing a bit more of an edge, even though it already had that. Mm. You know, I feel like if they had kind of made it all clean, it wouldn't have had the same quality. I thought this was a really exciting record. You know, fans yeah. of 60s jazz, that would be me. Okay. Right. And I took to this right away, especially on the first and last tracks. Uh, the last track is called Urgent, and it is urgent as advertised. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And these kind of sandwich the more varied material in between. Yeah, all the tracks are long enough so that the solos get time to develop their ideas, and that's another great thing about this record. There's, like, there's a lot of space right. uh, for the uh, soloists. I said that the sound was a bit on the raw side, giving the recording an edge that I said benefits it. So hmm. there you go. The first track and last tracks were my favorite because of the energy, but the album stayed interesting in between, going through various styles and featuring a lot of solos played with style. And I really loved the trumpet playing on this record, too, yeah. especially. That really stood out for me. I wish there were a CD of this. I'd love to have it. Maybe there is. I mean, I checked the uh, website this yeah, time, too, and I didn't find it there either. So if there is one, let us know. I would really like to get a copy of this. Well, you're welcome, adult music listeners. I'm up every morning, long before the sun, with my coffee, just scouring the lists to find recordings like this that you're not going to you know, get a chance to find out about anywhere else unless you're really looking. And I don't think anyone's looking as hard as I am anywhere out there. This yeah. goes great with that Connor Stewart recording we heard a couple episodes back, really um, calling up the 1960s uh, vibes yeah. really well. So yeah, I'll keep doing it every day. I won't miss a day. You know, even if we weren't doing a podcast, you still wouldn't miss it. <laughs> no, no, probably not. Because you'd be doing this anyway. Yeah, I mean, I can only scratch <laughs> the surface of, of all the things that I find, you know. Yeah. But 
you know, we'll get as many little gems in as we can. And this certainly was one. Well, that's the thing. I look at my uh, list of uh, recordings we didn't talk about this year in classical. And it's like, you know, there are like 60 recordings on there. Yeah. Not that I would have chosen all 60 of them, but still, I mean, I would have, wouldn't have minded doing a lot more. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But I like to get the ones I'm pretty sure nobody else is going to be talking about. Uh, right, so right. get those documented. All right. That's going to wrap up episode 143. And we've got one more regular episode before the best of the year. We want to say thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island, as always, for our glowing neon logo. And remember to check out the Same Difference to Jazz Fans One Jazz Standard podcast. There'll be a little promo after we sign off here the link is in the description it will be showing up hopefully on new year's over on their podcast any preview for next week's uh, episode mike well what do i have well we're gonna have to do the uh sean shiba you know the new uh right his new album because we really like him a lot and uh it features all latin american composers let's see oh we have the uh, ranitsky recording of string oh, quartets right. this time we're gonna That'd do be that great. yeah yeah, so we got we do get another Ranitsky album in this year. And then I'm going to end the year with uh, John Pickard's Mass for Troubled Times because I feel like that's just the appropriate way to end the year. Right. <laughs> we'll start the year in a more the next year in a more positive way, but we'll see how that goes too. Right. I've got some guitar going over to Italy with Fabio Zepatella with an ode to the Jazz Masters, and then I've got a debut sax player Andrew Pereira. That's on Fresh Sound New Talent. We're going to talk about that and one that I wish had come out a couple weeks earlier. But anyway, it will be a good follow up. This is called Sati, A Time Remembered from Dutch bassist and his sextet Casper van Miel. And so it's going to be uh, reimagining Sati's harmonies and compositions in a jazz sextet. That sounds pretty interesting. I've already heard it. And so listeners can prepare by listening to the Shamayu recording yeah, that we talked to about Shamayu. today. Yeah. Get all those little pieces in your brain and they get ready to have them deconstructed in a jazzy way. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be good. Hmm. So that's coming up next week. If you want that playlist, it'll be up a couple hours after this episode. I'll have it on Deezer and there'll be a link to it on Facebook. And then after that, we're going to uh, be going back, looking through the archives and uh, picking our favorites for 2023 that's going to be a lot of fun yeah i think so i don't know about the we're going to be sampling them this year too which means i have to listen to a few of them again to figure out which part we're going to put on yeah probably just one per album will be enough uh, yeah that's well we'll that would be it yeah Yeah. because they're going to be like 20 albums each or something yeah something like that (laughs) you know why do we do this to ourselves yeah i don't know we do it for the people we do it for the people that's why All right. Well, that's a lot to look forward to. So we'll be back again next week with episode 144. Thanks for staying with us to the end. And until then, keep listening. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.